Welcome back to a brand new episode of Demand Gen Chat. I'm your host, Tara Robertson, and I have a very special guest joining me today. Daryl, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. For anyone who hasn't met Daryl yet, Daryl Alfonso works in global marketing operations at Amazon Web Services or AWS. He's also a frequent MarTech speaker and author. If you're in B2B, you've probably seen his face on your LinkedIn feed. I know I do every now and then and often sharing mm. some fun takes on the marketing ops space. So Daryl, I'd love to start with just a little bit about your current role and what your team is working on. A little bit of background on me. I've spent my career in B2B marketing, um, just in a, in a number of roles. I started as a, at, in, a in a startup for, so, my, so the first four years of my career, I was um, in the startup life at about like a 20 person company. Um, and I've always just really enjoyed all things B2B, all things demand gen, marketing operations. Only recently have I been at a mega enterprise company. So, so I work at AWS um, and there's, you know, to give you some idea of it, you know, my team owns Marketo. So um, there's about over a thousand users that uh, mar marketing users around the world that access our marketing platforms and tools and um, we're really responsible for empowering them to create really great experiences for our customers. And um, yeah, so, so it's only been recently about three years that I've worked at Mega Enterprise. Most of my experience is actually at small and medium-sized companies. Um, and that's why I, I like to comment and write about the variety of different ways that you can approach doing marketing operations, doing demand gen, and then just B2B marketing in general. And are you able to share what the main KPIs that your team is working on? It sounds like a lot of it is kind of enablement and setting up other marketers for success, but is there anything that you're measuring day to day? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of different ways that I think about this. I think that KPIs depends on your role, meaning that there's some things that we look at really closely, which is like our system performance metrics, our channel performance metrics, um, being the owners of Marketo, we also own the email marketing metrics, <laughs> obviously. Mm -hmm. So since that's what Marketo is primarily used for, even though it does more than that. Um, so, but I would say that even though we have goals, so for example, one of our goals is really improving the marketability, mailability, and overall health of our database to make sure that it's getting better in quality versus worse. Um, and as you know, that kind of downstream leads to improvements across all of them. We actually report all metrics on a weekly basis. So even though there's some things that we're looking at, we still look at all of it. And I think that that's, um, you know, I think, I think at first I thought that was a little bit excessive, but, but, you know, coming to Amazon, I think that it really, you know, helps you put your sort of analyst hat on and your, your sort of analytical skills and really kind of pushes you to look at the entire picture. And I think that that's really important for just business professionals of all kinds. You know what I mean? Like, even though we're, even though, like, let's say you work in demand gen and you're trying to increase the number of leads or inquiries or meetings booked or something like that. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't look at everything. Um, and, and, and my favorite is to actually look at everything monthly. And then one other thing that I really recommend people to do is that you're tracking 
your goals on a trending basis? Like, are we going to meet them? But when you look at the other metrics, you're also looking to just sort of see what's going on. And I think that that's, that's something that, that I think a lot of marketers miss. Um, because, because the data and information that you're getting is just really, it's just that. And, and you want to look at it as if you're looking, you know, at your book of business or your portfolio, and you're just kind of seeing what comes to the surface. And that's when the most exciting insights happen. You know, things that you don't expect to happen, things that you, you didn't plan for, things that are working that you, you may have thought, you know, wouldn't work. Um, so that would be my recommendation there. I also have one other comment. I don't know if you want to move on to, to a different topic, but but there's there's something else yeah, that I no, want to talk about when it comes to <laughs> Yeah, so we have this really cool concept at Amazon and other places too, and mm -hmm. it's the idea of managing your inputs and then monitoring your outputs. And inputs means that these are things that you can specifically control and influence. Um, and if you manage those correctly, then the output should follow, right? So, so in a marketing context, like let's say sales or sales qualified opportunities, right? Those are actually outputs. You don't have official mm -hmm. control over that, but you do have control over the number of campaigns that you run, the budget that you're spending, quality metrics on your campaigns, feedback from customers. Um, you know, so each, each team and each division has control over a set of inputs that you can really change, um, if you want to. And if you goal yourself by doing that, um, you, you'll find that the output metrics follow, you know what I mean? It's kind of like if you've read, um, Atomic Habits by James Clear, it's a very similar, uh, concept where like. You manage the daily habits, and then if you do those right, long-term, you'll meet your goals. But you're not like, you know, managing your, that output. You're managing actually what you can control on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that's a really cool concept and something that I try to think about often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we might have borrowed this from Amazon, actually, but we follow something called actions, yields, and expected outcomes. So instead of setting nice. KPIs for every campaign, we just kind of say, roughly, here's what's happened in the past, here's what we expect. And then obviously, we're taking some educated guesses in there. But that's how we kind of build backwards from our targets. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's a good way to look at it. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, because you're the first ops person I've had on here, usually I'm talking to demand gen marketers like myself. So how do you help, the, say, the demand gen, the channel owners with their targets and building up their KPIs and their goals? So the way that we look at it is that I think we recognize the idea of conflicting interests. And we embrace mm -hmm. it in a way where there's healthy tension between the two. So from a support perspective, we're creating the tools and the processes, the guardrails, um, the training, so that marketers can run as fast as they want to. You know, like we're, we're like mm -hmm. empowering, we're, we're, we're empowering them. Um, the way that I like to, 
I like to put it, and I've said this on social media before, but like marketing ops is kind of like the pit crew on the racetrack. And, you know, let, let, let's say the demand gen team is driving the car. They have to stop every now and then to refuel, um, check your instruments, change out the tires. And when that happens, the demand gen team can actually go faster than if they didn't stop, right? So it's a really great analogy because, you know, the entire, the, the entire group, the driver plus the pit crew operate as a team. And, and it, only when everyone works together can, can you win the race. So I like that, that analogy. Mm -hmm. So that's how we support people. But naturally, demand gen tends to have, you know, unless, unless you're a little bit like, unless by nature you have a very long-term culture, they have short-term goals usually. Mm -hmm. um, and they're trying to, to meet this. So it's actually our job to look long-term to make sure that they can continue to hit goals in the future and that our customer experience stays um, of really high quality. So when those things clash, you end up usually with some sort of good uh, compromise. And I think that that's, that's, the that's the way that I look at it. Because if, if everything was run by demand gen, you would have this sort of law of diminishing returns. And things would slowly mm -hmm. kind of break because you're moving a little bit too quickly. If everything operated from the court, from the perspective of operations, it would probably be a little bit too slow and a little bit too safe. So going against each other, even though it may seem conflicting, is actually a good thing. And if you take the sort of emotions out of it, you end up in a really good place, you know, like keeping your work separate from how you feel. And, and mm -hmm. you're going to argue but in the end, it'll make the entire program better because you're having those conversations and you're debating um, which is too much and which is too little. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that trying to meet in the middle analogy because you're right. Ops is often focused on long term, making sure things don't break. Our database is clean. And, and at least in my experience, the demand gen goals are often what can we do this month, this week, today? to bring in those leads for sales. So I'm curious from your perspective, how can demand gen marketers meet in the middle? What can we do to kind of explain to ops our side of the story maybe, or if there's anything else we could do to kind of, again, bridge that gap and meet in the middle? So there's two things. Um, I'll give you like, I'll give you like the, uh, the high level way that I think that your mindset should be, and then I'll give you like a practical way to do it. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I think that no matter what your role is, um, the best way that I think of, cause you, you got different groups, you have like ops, demand gen, sales, um, brand, everything like that. Rather than think of yourself as a specific group, my recommendation is we always should think of ourselves as like business practitioners, or business professionals that have a specialty. And, and, that's in, and in, in that way, you think about the business as a whole, what makes it run, and you think about customers. And if everyone thinks that way, but then contributes their own specific piece of the pie, it works a lot better. So even though I'm in ops, I know that, that it's important that we meet our revenue and demand generation goals. I know that it's important that we throw events, that we do things fairly quickly. So, so this sort of like 
separate group thing means separate personalities and separate perspectives isn't necessarily true. Um, you, you, it, it, it's always, it's always everyone thinking about the business and the customer and then how they fit into it is, 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 is the better way to look at it. So at a high level, that's, that's, that's how everyone can kind of come to a compromise. I, I think that, um, when it comes to, if you're having trouble with it, um, there's something called over, under, and just right. And you want to take each of your either goals or tenants or principles, and you, you want to develop different scenarios where you know what is when you're over-indexing, when you're under-indexing, and what an example of, of, of right is. So, so, so my, um, we have something called bias for action, which is one of our leadership principles. And it means that we, we move quickly. Now, over-indexing on bias for action would look like no planning, um, you know, no understanding of if something is working or not, and then implementing things on almost a throwing spaghetti at a wall sort of fashion, right? Which is what people make the mistake of when they think of bias for action. They're just like, we're just going to do this just because, and we're just going to see if it works or not. When that's not necessarily true, you end up with chaos um, and a really bad customer experience, to be mm -hmm. honest. And then under-indexing for bias for action means that you're having like analysis paralysis, right? There's so much planning. You're, you're scared of what you should do because you're, you're afraid of making mistakes. And all of your projects, you see that all your projects are delayed and, and you always miss deadlines. That's under-indexing. Um, so it's up to us to try to figure out what just right means. You know, and that could mean something like, and, and you want to define this for your own org. I think it's very different for enterprise versus startup, but, but that could mean something like you have 80% of the data, um, you're 80% confident it's going to generate some sort of goal. Um, you, you're moving quickly. Everything's not perfect, but the customer experience is still seamless, right? So, so by have, by defining just right, uh, when it comes to demand gen. Um, I think, I think that, that, that you can, you can chart a course that that's very balanced and takes into account both mm -hmm. short-term and long-term. Yeah. So it's something you probably just have to get in a room and talk about what just right looks like to everyone and kind of get on that page before you just start throwing requests over to marketing ops that have no context and aren't connected to anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that if you do the first part, which I said, which is like mm -hmm. being a business professional first, it becomes much easier, you know, because you're already thinking long-term, you know what I mean? You're already, you're already thinking, you know, here are the goals that we have to hit this quarter, but we also like next quarter, we're not starting from scratch and next quarter, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to destroy, destroy our, our, our relationship with customers. Like, like the most common example mm -hmm. is like over emailing. This is like one of the most yeah. common examples. If you're trying to drive something. And when you over email a list, you may get incrementally more registrations for an event, but um, you're also going to drive more unsubscribes and you have more people tuning out. So it makes it even harder to do it next quarter. So mm -hmm. you have to determine what over is and what under is. Um, and it, it really, and that's very situational, I think, depending on 
how how engaged your your audience is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Off speaking on that note, you had a really good post on just marketing ops don'ts in general on LinkedIn that I came across. So I'd love to hear. I think this mm. was posted a few months ago now. Um, obviously, over emailing is a huge one that people come across all the time, and you can really burn your list. But is there anything new that you've come across as kind of a recent trend that you've seen in the don'ts, or maybe something that you just keep seeing over and over again? I am so happy that that list was met with great reception because it, to me, it was a very practical, very in the weeds list. Like I literally wrote out that you shouldn't email Quebec <laughs> if your email isn't in French and Canadian. So I was, always, I was wondering, I'm like, oh, this might be a little bit too in the weeds for, for LinkedIn, but I'm really glad that it resonated with people. Um, so I feel like that's knowing your audience, right? Because ops is always yeah. in the weeds figuring that stuff. <laughs> so. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've been just thinking about this is kind of random. One of the things that I've been thinking mm-hmm. about um, that I've been seeing a lot and that I've been thinking about more deeply is like how to properly run experiments and do A-B testing. Um, mm-hmm. I think that when you have an incredible volume of traffic, or audience. These really small A-B tests make, can make a difference. But for most of us, especially when we're in B2B, we don't have that like luxury. Mm-hmm. AWS is a little bit unique though, because we actually have like yeah. millions. <laughs> you millions probably have a lot to play but, with. Yeah, we have a lot to play with. But, but um, it's much more effective if you test something with very stark contrast, right? So, so rather than say, oh, we're going to subject line test register now for this webinar versus last chance to register. You know what I mean? The differences are so close. The similarities are so close that you don't take away a lot from the test. You want to make something where it's like completely different, you know, whereas you're testing maybe urgency versus your text, you're saying something like last chance to register for this versus the sort of caliber of the speaker, you know, like mm-hmm. what this CEO thinks about marketing or what, um, what this C- CIO predicts are the, are the, is the future of cloud computing. I think that that is much more, much more actionable and more real too, because if you really think about it, making a, making a, a, a distinction between two very similar choices, um, might just be, you might just chalk it up to, you know, something small, some, some sort of like emotion or like whim that your user is experiencing versus really like, versus the test really hinging on the fact that it's two completely different messages and which message resonates with your audience. Mm -hmm. So I think that you should think about, think about that. One way, one way to, one way to do that is, um, you want to think about if either if one of the versions or one of the um, treatments wins, how would that change almost everything that you're going to be doing or everything that you're approaching? Right? You're you're you're, you're you have mm-hmm. the, this opportunity to really learn about your audience and really learns about what what really learn about what resonates with them, and um, that's that's how you should be doing every single experiment. Um, Unless you're in B2C and unless you have super high traffic, you know, I will, I will, I will say that, especially with like 
the growth hacking trend and stuff like that, it's very common to test very small stuff like purple versus violet or teal versus light blue. You know what I mean? And it's right. just like, oh, and then and then you'll see these webinars where someone's like, we saw a 20% increase because we use teal, you know? And and when it comes to B2B and when it comes to most companies, it re that really doesn't make a big difference. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I I I do want to I do want I did want to comment that one. That's something that I've seen recently. Um, and I, I definitely encourage marketers to think about their A/B tests a lot more thoughtfully and more carefully, mm -hmm. and 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 in, in a more like actionable way. Yeah. So I, I'm pretty sure a lot of people listening are in that boat of B2B focus, not a ton of traffic. So say you're running a test and you do get a great insight or a great learning. How would you recommend we kind of catalog those learnings or organize them and share them back to the rest of the team? So that to your point, it's not just a one-time A-B test and then we move on and test something totally irrelevant the next time. Yeah, this one's, I think this one's a tough one. Um, here's some things that I think, you know, a little bit more tactically that kind of work. Mm -hmm. One is we, um, you know, I'm a big advocate of centers of excellence, meaning that campaigns, campaign templates, even processes are all templated out and you have this repository to pull from. And every time you come up with a really good insight, you improve the baseline, you know, so you're, you're going back to improving the center of excellence itself. Um, I think the other way, um, you know, you want, you also want to broadly share it. It's not for, at, at, at Amazon, we share our results so frequently and we store them um, his, historically so people can go back and look. So it's never been too much of a problem in terms of, in terms of documenting. Like, for example, most companies have QBRs. We have MBRs. So it's like, that, so it's like the, the, the quarterly version, except we do it every single month. So literally, once we're done with an MBR, the next week we start working on the next one. So it's, so it's, so it's very, very much a regular thing to report out on, on what you're doing. Um, so I would do that. The, 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 the final thing that would really help is to figure out some sort of goal that you're trying to get to that the tests support, right? Mm -hmm. So that you don't necessarily need to remember what every single test was. You're always just sort of moving forward. Um, when it comes to, um, um, when it comes to, um, um, uh, the goal. So like, like, a, like an example that we have is that we prioritize, we have so many emails going out on, on a weekly basis, like a thousand campaigns probably that go out every week. So what we've been doing is we've been, we've built an algorithm to figure out which email goes first and which email goes second. Um, and we're constantly testing that algorithm based on certain rules. Okay. You know, we want like, like this month we want to test, um, regionally if large events make sense in this region versus lead nurture versus, you know, product announcements. And then once we, once we pull that test together, we update the algorithm. So, so I think that that in the same way, like, you don't, your team doesn't need to be working on an algorithm, but you want to have some sort of goal in mind that you want to do. Like, like once you know that um, X will increase your registration rates for each campaign, 
you you build that into the loop of, of, of every single campaign going forward, and then you create another test to reach that goal. So in that sense, you don't need to be as, as you know, tactical about remembering everything that you've done. You've just sort of ingrained the learning and now you're kind of doing it again. Um, so I would say that those, those are some ideas that, that could help. Yeah, I love that idea of building it into a center of excellence. We're definitely, a little, we're a little smaller, so we're not there yet, but we're trying to build those out as we speak, which it's been a fun experiment to build. Um, one big piece of ops that I'm super interested in is just how cross-functional the role is. So I'd love to hear if you have any stories of just mistakes or maybe learnings you've made in working with other teams, could be within marketing or maybe with sales. And just what did you learn from that experience that maybe other ops marketers could take away from it? Yeah. You know, one thing that um, comes to mind is that we're, you know, my team is responsible for the process in which campaigns get executed and implemented. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I did last year, um, and I felt really strongly about it, was we implemented an incredibly high quality assurance check with each campaign. Um, you know, some people might say that it was unnecessarily high and it involved having a third party, third party meaning like, not like someone outside of Amazon, but a different team review your campaign before it could get deployed. I really believe strongly in that. And I had to roll this out to, again, there's like a thousand people that, 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 that run campaigns. It was incredibly difficult, and each meeting that I had ended up being this really heated debate over over why it was necessary. Um, and the first thing that I learned from that is that even though people may disagree with you, um, if you really believe strongly in the purpose of what you're doing and you take the time to listen to people, um, give their feedback, even though you may not take it, but hear them out and understand their position. Um, it'll help you move forward when you're when you're working with these difficult circumstances. That's the first thing that I learned. In hindsight, even though I do think that the incredibly high standard uh, campaign standard that we rolled out um, would was probably right. I think from a practical, real life perspective, it was too much when I, when I, when I look back at it in hindsight and we have since mitigated it and made it a little bit like easier to actually get your campaigns approved. Um, mm -hmm. so I think that that's also something that, that, um, that I try to advise people on. It's kind of like when you look at best practices, when you read like marketing books or you take classes or you take, take things, there's this idea of what is how it should be. And then when you implement it in practice, it may not yield the results that you think. And I think that that really makes it up to us or it's it falls on us to be adaptive, to be empathetic, and to sort of be okay with doing things our own way, even though it may go against best practices. And I think that that's, that's like the more balanced and like human way of like approaching work. Um, so those are like some really big things that I learned from that, I would say, pretty tough change management initiative that I had to do. Um, but overall, yeah, I think like it was a great it. learning experience. 
That's I'm super interested in that QA checklist, if it's something that you've ever shared, just because we, I mean, to be totally honest, I send most of our emails and I'm lucky if I can get a second set of eyes on them half the time because we're just always behind, you know, how things are just moving so quickly. So it's super interesting to see just how it would look at such a giant organization like AWS. Yeah. So, you know, when when you're really agile, it's hard to do. But mm -hmm. I will say just one of the things that like you'll never go astray is is like you you always even if it's not a marketer, you always have to have a second set of eyes. And it's because mm -hmm. we naturally get too close to our work. Um it's why writers have editors. It's why um you know, like our rule is that you we can you can never push something live that you've built. Um, that's our like mm. number one rule. It always has to be someone else. And in that way, we keep it, um, you know, because if you think about scale, um, when, when you think about processes and scale, things don't get better. They get worse and more complex. So you want to start very strong and have a really almost foolproof method in place so that you know that it kind of can keep growing. Um, cause it, otherwise it starts kind of falling apart. Um, so that, that, that's something that I would do. I remember, um, working for a smaller team. Um, we would have, you know, even if it's like a, a, a agency or an intern or a graphic designer, um, be the second set of eyes if you don't mm. have another marketer and, and, and it, yeah. they always find something. <laughs> They yeah, a link do. or something. There's always something. Can't. They're always just like, oh, what is this? And you're like, oh my gosh, I was I was working on that at 10 p.m. last night. I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't see that. Yeah, but that's, that's okay. Draft. That's like natural. <laughs> we we make mistakes. Like like I even after like I I send out an email to marketers and I've re read it like three times. I'll look back on it mm -hmm. another day and I'm just like, there's a typo, <laughs> you know. And it's just it's yeah, just it's very to human catch. to do. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that goes back nicely to at the beginning, you were saying a lot of demand gen marketers like to move quickly. Obviously, I'm in that boat of just trying to get our programs out the door. So if ops can be that person kind of not pushing, maybe gently pushing them to slow down a little bit and double check things, be that voice of the customer almost and make sure that, again, it has a second set of eyes on it. The experience makes sense when people click through that email. Just kind of tie it all together. Yeah. And you know, if you're the one building the campaign, you're also ops. So I think that that's like one of my, and it's actually one of my favorite. Yeah. Um, I would say in a future life, if I were, you know, I definitely don't regret the hybrid roles that I've had in the past where, you know, you do both demand gen and ops because mm -hmm. it gives you incredible insight into how work actually gets done. And it brings a level of reality to your strategy. Because when you think about your strategy and you think about what, 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 what you need to do to, to, to get to your goals, you're also thinking about the work it's going to take to get it done because you have to do it mm -hmm. too, right? So you're not going to like overcommit or, or put something together that's really fuzzy. And this, is, this becomes very, like this is the cause of a lot of the misalignment when people create a strategy that they're not exactly sure if it can become a reality, right? They're just saying like, well, we're going to run engagements. You know, we're going to really engage our customers with a, an incredible 
incredible like digital experience. And then like what it really means is that there's like a landing page with a video. Do you know what I mean? And and like the disc that disconnect between strategy and, and actual execution is present in so many, especially large organizations. So I guess my my thing is, um, you know, you probably do a lot more ops than you think you do, and um, it's it's a it's a much it's a very fun role to do both, um, at least for a little while, because you get to learn both of it. Great. So, any last thoughts just on marketing ops in general that you'd like to share with our audience before we move on to our quick fire round? The the one problem I see, I think, with most marketers, is um, they don't do prioritization correctly. Um, and we don't have enough time to cover all of the different frameworks that you do prioritization, but it's so helpful to take a look at your projects, whether you're demand gen or marketing ops, and then apply some sort of framework. Um, Mm -hmm. and then my favorites are impact effort matrix, urgent, important matrix. And that's, um, um, what's it called? Eisenhower. It's called the Eisenhower matrix. Mm -hmm. And then there's also something called weighted scoring, which is probably one of the best. And it's where based on specific goals that you have for the organization on different fronts, like revenue, um, customer experience, um, long-term scalability, you rank your priorities based on those different ones. And then you come up with a score. And that's one of the best ways to actually prioritize your work. Prioritization ends up being like ends up changing the entire way that you work because um, the focus of what you do ends up being like ends up having a really big impact on the output of everything. So by spending a lot of time with prioritization, you actually improve the quality of your work in ways that you really won't know. Um, And that is, I mean, with, you know, you might have like some, you might see this some of the time, but, but with ops, it's very prevalent where there's just too much to do in too little time. And mm-hmm. we spend so much time on the things that are least impactful. And at the end of the year, we look back and say, gosh, what did I do that whole year? You know, I just put out fires the whole year. I just fixed bugs the whole year. And you look back and you're not really proud of the work that you did. And you, you can solve for that by spending a good amount of time with prioritization up front. Mm. Yeah, I think that's always a tricky spot to be in is that putting out fires role for ops because often it's one person at a startup, maybe half a person like me doing it. So when something's broken, it feels like the end of the world and it feels like you have to jump on that before your own priorities. But I like the idea of taking taking the time up front and setting those kind of boundaries to make sure that your own priorities get done. Mm -hmm. Great. So moving on to our quick fire round, is there another marketer that you follow that our listeners should go check out and follow? I've been following Amanda Natividad a lot lately. Maybe you've heard mm-hmm. of her. She's on like Twitter, especially in LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Super great stuff. Very insightful. She's one of my favorites. Uh, there's probably too many to name That's that I follow. That's a great one. Yeah. She's one of my recent one favorites. <laughs> we can link that in the show notes. Um, and this one might not apply so much to ops, but I'm curious if there's Something under the radar could be a tactic or a trend that your team has been talking about a lot right now. We've been experimenting a lot with movable ink. Have you heard of that? Um, it, mm-hmm. it, and it's a, uh, yeah, yeah. So it gives you the ability to craft emails in real time based on who, who the person is. I think that there, that I have a sense that 
that's really going to be the future of marketing for B2B um, because it already happens in B2C. So mm-hmm. if you think about the emails that you get from like Amazon or Netflix and things like that, they're actually crafted in real time when it gets to you based on who you are, right? So, so you, you have an email that's looking at your entire Netflix history and serving up something based on what, based on what they think you're going to like the most. So this, that is almost mainstay in some of the best B2C companies um, right now, but it's not in B2B. In B2B, we just do like maybe simple segmentation, you know, based on your industry, Mm -hmm. we're going to send you this. Um, So, so I'm particularly interested in crafting digital experiences that are incredibly personalized for each person. Movable Inc. is a great way to do it. And I think that we're, we're seeing some really great early results, but there's other ways that you can do it too. You do like velocity scripting, um, um, and you can do like other, other, other ways to make your, your, the experience really personalized. Um, that I think is going to be really a heavy influence on the future of how we work in B2B. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great example. And lastly, where can we go to find out more about you and follow your content? I think I know the answer to this one, but. Yeah, LinkedIn's my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I try to spend some time on Twitter when I can, but, um, you know, I, I find that, I don't know, for some reason, LinkedIn just make, just, just, uh, I, I started writing on LinkedIn during the pandemic um, and it just became a real good habit. And I just like the, the length of the, the length of the posts that you can do. Um, and I'm just so familiar with it. I'll probably start trying to do more of Twitter H2 this year, but LinkedIn for sure. <laughs> Great. We'll put those links in the show notes so everyone can follow you. Thanks so much, Daryl, for joining me today. It was a really great chat. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tara. I appreciate it. Great. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll see you back here in two weeks with a brand new guest.